conquered or worsted every other civilization upon earth, that with the single exception of China, it has made every one of the coveted tracts of Asia its own, that it has discovered, settled, and developed a new continent to be the equal of the old, that it has won not a complete but a good working knowledge of the whole surface of the globe. We are at home in the world now, we say, and if we would know what that means, we must look at the Europe of the 10th or even the 14th century, look at the theoretic maps of the Middle Ages, look at the legends and the pseudo-science of a civilization which was shut up within itself and condemned for so long to fight in a narrowing circle against incessant attacks from without and the barbarism which the state of things kept alive within, then perhaps we shall take things a little less for granted, and perhaps also we shall begin to think that if this great advance, the greatest thing in modern history as we know it, that which is the distinction and glory of the last 300 years, is at all due to the inspiration and the action of Henry of Portugal, an obscure prince of the 15th century, that obscure prince may possibly belong to the rank of the great civilizers, the men who had most altered society and advanced it, men like Alexander and Caesar and the founders of the great world religions, it may be as well to trace out very shortly the evidence for such a claim as this and to see, how the prince's work was followed up, first on his own lines to south and east, second, on other lines, which his own suggested, to a west and north, one, King Afonso v. Henry's nephew, though rather more of a hard fighter and tournament king than a man who could fully take up his uncle's plans, had yet caught enough of his inspiration to push on steadily, though slowly, the advance round Africa, he had already done his best to get the great map of Fra Moru finished, this, which embodied all the achievements of the navigator and gave the most complete and perfect view of the world that had ever yet appeared, had come out in 1459, just before Henry's death, the last tribute of science to the prince's work, now, in 1461, left alone to deal with the discovery and conquest of Guinea, Afonso repaired Henry's fort in the Bay of Orgin and sent Juan Pedro de Sintra to survey the coast beyond the Rio Grande, the farthest point of Kitamosto in his first voyage, as generally known, Pedro went 600 miles into the Bight of Benin, passed a mountain range called Sierra Leone from the lion-like growl of the thunder on its summits, and turned back near the point afterwards known as Fort La Mina 1461, sometime in the next few years, another courtier, one Suero de Acosta followed Pedro de Sintra to Guinea, but without any new results, when Catamosto left Portugal February 1, 1463, he tells us, there were no more voyages to the newfound parts, the slave trade nearer home was now, indeed, absorbing all energies and Afonso's main relation with African voyaging is to be found in his regulations for the security of this trade, but in 1471 there was another move in the line of further discovery, for exploring energy was not dead or worn out, but only waiting a leader. Fernando Ponau reached the island in the farthest inlet of the Gulf of Guinea, which is still called after him, finding as he went on that the eastern bend of Africa, which men had followed so confidently since 1445, the year of the rounding of Cape Verde, now ended with a sharp turn to the south. It was a great disappointment, but in spite of this discouragement, at the very same time two of the foremost of the Portuguese pilots, Martin Fernandez and Alvaro Esteves, passed the whole of the Guinea coast, the bites of Benin and of Biafra, and crossed the equator, into a new heaven and a new earth, on the edge of which the caravels of Portugal had long been hovering, as they saw like Kitamosto, stars unknown in the northern hemisphere and more and more nearly lost sight of the northern pole, 
1475 Cape Street Catherine, two degrees south of the line, was reached and then after six more years of languishing exploration and flourishing trade, King John II, succeeded Afonso V and took up the work, in the spirit of Prince Henry the Navigator, now in six short years, exploration carried out the main part of the design of so many years, the southern Cape of Africa was rounded and the way to India laid open, for the time had come, and the man, John, added a new chapter to discovery by the travelers he sent across the dark continent and the sailors he dispatched to the Arctic seas to find a northeast passage to China. He died just as he was fitting up the expedition that was to enter upon the promised land, and the glory of Diagama's voyage fell to one who had not labored, but entered upon the fruits of the toil of other men, the palace king, Emmanuel the Fortunate, but at least the names of Dias, and Diego Cam, and Covilum, the rounding of the Cape of Storms, the first journey going overland one, straight from Lisbon to Malabar, belonged to the second founder of Portuguese and European discovery, John the Perfect. Less than four months after his father's death, John, who as heir apparent, had drawn part of his income from the African trade and its fisheries, sent out Diego de Azambuga with ten caravels to superintend three undertakings, first the construction of a fort at St. George de Amina, to secure the trade of the Guinea coast, second, the rebuilding of Henry's old fort at Arguin, third, the exploration of the yet unknown coast as far as possible, for this, stones, brick, wood, mortar, and tools for building were sent out with the fleet, and carved pillars were taken to be set up in all fresh discovered lands, instead of the wooden crosses that had previously done duty, each pillar was fourteen hands high, was carved in front with the royal arms and on the sides with the names of the king and the discoverer, with the date of discovery in Latin and Portuguese, Azambuga's fleet sailed on the 11th of December, 1480, made a treaty with the chief Bezegishi, near Cape Verde, and reached La Mina on the south coast of Guinea, on January 19, 1482, after a year spent in fort building and treaty making with the natives of northwest Africa, fort and church at La Mina were finished in 20 days, and Azambuga sent back his ships with a great cargo in slaves and gold, but without any news of fresh discovery, John was not disposed to be content with this, in 1484, Diego Can was ordered to go as far to the south as he could, and not to wait anywhere for other matters. He passed Cape Street Catherine, just beyond the line, which since 1475 had been the limit of knowledge, and continuing south, reached the mighty river Congo, called by the natives Zaire, and now known as the second of African rivers, the true counterpart of that western Nile, which every geographer since Ptolemy had reproduced and which, in the Senegal, the Gambia, and the Niger, the Portuguese had again and again sought to find their explanation. Cam, by agreement with the natives, took back four hostages to act as interpreters and next year returned to Anpassade the Congo, and sailed 200 leagues beyond, to the site of the modern Volvis Bay 1485. Here, as the coast seemed to stretch interminably south, though he had now really passed quite nine-tenths of the distance to the southern Cape, Cam turned back to the Congo where he persuaded the king and people to profess themselves Christians and allies of Portugal. Already, in 1484, a native embassy to King John had brought such an account of an inland prince, one again, a Christian at heart, that all the court of Lisbon thought he must be the long-lost priester John, and the Portuguese monarch, all on fire with this hope, sent out at once in search of this great Catholic lord, by sea and land, Bartholomew Dias sailed in August. 
1486, with two ships, first to search for the Priester, and then to explore as much new land and sea as he could find within his reach. Two envoys, Kodilam and Kava, were sent on the same errand, by way of Jerusalem, Arabia, and Egypt. Another expedition was sent to ascend the Senegal to its junction with the Nile. A fourth party started to find the way to Cathay by the northeast passage. Camelins has sung of the travels of Kodilam, who first saw cloves and cinnamon, pepper and ginger, and who pined away in a state of confinement at the Priester Sandicinian court. But the voyage of Dias hardly finds a place in the Lusians and the very name of the discoverer is generally forgotten. Vasco Diagima has robbed him only too successfully. John Dias had been the second captain to double Dajander, Dionys Dias in 1445, had been the discoverer of Senegal and of Cape Verde, now, 40 years later, Bartholomew Diaz achieved the greatest feat of discovery in all history, before Columbus, for the Northmen's finding America was an unknown and transitory good fortune, while the voyage of 1486 changed directly or indirectly the knowledge, the trade, the whole face of the world at once and forever, sailing with two little frigates, each of 50 tons burden, in the belief that ships which sailed down the coast of Guinea might be sure of reaching the end of the continent, by persisting to the south, Dias, in one voyage of sixteen months, performed the main task which Henry seventy years ago had set before his nation, passing Valvis Bay and the farthest pillar of Diego Cam. He reached a headland where he set up his first new pillar at what is still known as Dias Point, still coasting southwards and tacking frequently. He passed the Orange River the northern limit of the present Cape Colony, then putting well out to sea Dias ran 13 days before the wind due south, hoping by this wide sweep to around the southern point of the continent, which could not now be far off, finding the cold become almost arctic and buffeted by tremendous seas, he changed his course to east, and then as no land appeared after five days, to north, the first land seen was a bay where cattle were feeding, now called Flesh Bay which Dias named from the cows and cowherds he saw there, after putting ashore two natives, some of those lately carried from Guinea or Congo to Portugal, and sent out again to act as scouts for the European colonies. The ships sailed east, seeking in vain for the land's end, till they found the coast tend gradually but steadily towards the north. Their last pillar was set up in Algo Bay, the first land trodden by Christians beyond the Cape, at the Great Fish River. 60 miles farther on and quite 500 miles beyond the point that Dias was looking for so anxiously, the crew refused to go any farther and the admiral turned back, only certain of one thing, that he had missed the cape, and that all his trouble was in vain, worn out with the worry of his bitter disappointment and incessant useless labor, he was coasting slowly back, when one day the veil fell from his eyes, for there came in sight that, so many ages unknown promontory, round which lay the way to India, and to find which had been the great ambition of all enterprise since the expansion of Europe had begun afresh in the opening years of that 15th century. While Dias was still tossing in the storms off the Great Cape, Kodilam and his friends had started from Lisbon to settle the course of the future sea route to India by an observation of all the coasts of the Indian Ocean, to explore what they could of Upper Africa, to find Priester John, and to allow the Portuguese experiment with anything they could find of Christian power in Greater or Middle or Further India, as King John's Senegal adventurers had been exploring the Niger, the Sahara caravan routes, the city of Timbuktu and the fancied Western Nile. So the Abyssinian travelers surveyed all the ground of Africa and Malabar which the first fleet that could round the Cape of Storms must come to, keep southward. 
Kodilam rode home from Cairo after his first visit to Calicut on one side and to Mozambique on the other. If you persist, Africa must come to an end, and when ships come to the Eastern Ocean let them ask for Sofal and the island of the moon Madagascar, and they will find pilots to take them to Malabar. Yet another chapter of discoveries was opened by King John's Cafe fleet. He failed to get news of a northeast passage, but beyond the north coast of Asia there was found a frozen island whose name of Novaya Zemlaya or Nova Zembla still keeps the memory of the first Portuguese attempts on the road where so many Dutch and English seamen perished in after years. The Great Voyage of Vasco Diego of 1497-9, the empire founded by Albuquerque 1506-15 in the Indian Seas, were the other steps in the complete achievement of Prince Henry's ambition when in the early years of the 16th century a direct and permanent traffic was fairly started between Malabar and Portugal, when European settlements and forts controlled the whole eastern and western coasts of Africa from the mouth of the Red Sea to the mouth of the Mediterranean, and the five keys of the Indies Malacca, Goa, Ormuz, Aden, and Ceylon were all in Christian hands, when the Muslim trade between East Africa and Western India had passed into a possession of the kings of Lisbon. Don Henry might seal the travail of his soul and be well satisfied. The supposed discovery of Australia about 1530, or somewhat earlier, and the travels of Ferdinand Mendez Pinto in Japan and the furthest east, the opening of the trade with China in 1517, and the complete exploration of Abyssinia, the Priestess Kingdom, in 1520, by Alvarez and the other Catholic missionaries, the millions converted by Francis Xavier and the Jesuit preachers in Malabar and the union of the old native Christian Church of India with the Rome in 1599, were other steps in the same road, all of them, if traced back far enough, bring us to the court of Sagres, and the same is true of Spanish and French and Dutch and English empires in the southern and eastern world, Henry built for his own nation, but when that nation failed from the exhaustion of its best blood, other peoples entered upon the inheritance of his work, but though he was not able himself to see the fulfillment of his plans, both the method of a southeast passage, and the men who followed it out to complete success, were his, his workmanship and his building, Diegema, Diego Cam, the Diaz family, and most of the great seamen who followed the path they had traced, were either brought up from boyhood in the household of the infant, as the chronicle of the discovery tells us of each new figure that comes upon the scene, or looked to him as their master, out to the school of Sagres their training and began their practical seamanship under his leave and protection. Even the lines upon which the national expansion and exploration went on were so strictly and exclusively the same as he had followed, that when a different route to the Indies was suggested after his death by Christopher Columbus, the court of John I.I. refused to treat it seriously, and this brings us to the other, the indirect side of Henry's influence. It was in Portugal, says Ferdinand Columbus, in his life of the admiral, his father, that the admiral began to think, that if men could sail so far south, one might also sail west and find lands in that quarter. The second great stream of modern discovery can thus be traced to the generous Henry of Campbell and Zlesiads no less plainly, though more indirectly, than the first, the western path was suggested by his success in the eastern, but that success had turned the heads of his own people, when Columbus, the son of the Genoese Wolcomer, who had been a resident in Lisbon since 1470, submitted to the court of John I.I., some time before 1484 a proposal to find Marco Polo's Sipangu by a few weeks sail west, from the Azores, he was treated as a dreamer, John, as Henry's disciple and successor, was, like other disciples, 
narrower than his master in the master's own way. He was ready for any expense and trouble, but no novelty. He would only go on as he had been taught. He had reason to be confident, and his scientific gentle for Martin Behaim of Nuremberg among them, to whom Columbus was referred, were too much elated with their new improvements in the astrolabe, and the now assured confidence that the southern cape would soon be passed. They could not endure with patience the vehement dogmatism of an unknown theorist, but as he was too full of his message to be easily shaken off, he was treated with the basest trickery, at the suggestion of the Bishop of Utah. Columbus was kept waiting for his answer, and asked to furnish his plans in detail with charts and illustrations. He did so, and while the council pretended to be poring over these for a final decision, a caravel was sent to the Cape Verde Islands to try the route he had suggested. A trial with the pickings of Italian brains. The Portuguese sailed westward for several days till the weather became stormy, then, as their heart was not in the venture, they put back to Europe with a fresh stock of the legends Henry had so heartily despised. They had come to an impenetrable mist, which had stopped their progress, apparitions had worn them back, the sea in those parts swarmed with monsters, it became impossible to breathe. Columbus learned how he had been used, and his wife's death helped to decide him, in his disgust for place and people. Towards the end of 1484, he left Lisbon, three years later when he had become fully as much disgusted with the dilatory sloth and tricks of Spain. He offered himself again to Portugal. King John had repented of his meanness, on March 20, 1488. He wrote in answer to Columbus, eagerly offering on his side to guarantee him against any suits that might be taken against him in Lisbon. But the court of Castile now became, in its turn, afraid of quite losing what might be infinite advantage. Columbus was kept in the service of Ferdinand and Isabella, and at last in August, 1492, the Catholic kings sent him out from Palos to discover what he could on his own terms. What followed? The discovery of America, and all the subsequent ventures of the Cabots, of Amerigo Vespucci, of Cortes and Pizarro, de Soto and Raleigh and the Pilgrim Fathers, are not often connected in any way with the slow and painful beginnings of European expansion in the Portugal of the 15th century but it is a true and real connection all the same. The whole onward and outward movement of the great exploring age was set in motion by one man. It might have come to pass without him, but the fact is simply that through him it did, as a matter of history, result, and let him that did more than this, go before him.